and welcome to another episode of The Shift Change, our podcast about all things nursing. We are your hosts, Michelle and Claire. This month, we're going to be focusing on the issue of Bill 22, the proposed legislation that would allow youth under the age of 19 in British Columbia to be involuntarily hospitalized for up to a week after a substance use overdose. Claire and I are going to share how we heard about this bill and share our perspectives as two nurses who've worked in adolescent mental health. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Bill 22. Bill 22 was legislation proposed under the former BC Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Honorable Judy Darcy. In 2020, Minister Darcy announced that the bill was not going to get through, which left many mental health clinicians, youth and caregivers breathing a sigh of relief. But at that time, the looming possibility of it passing was still on the horizon. The crux of the bill is that it makes proposed amendments to the BC Mental Health Act that would allow for youth to be detained against their will for five to seven days after a drug overdose so that the healthcare clinicians who are caring for them can devise a comprehensive care plan for the youth. And ideally, this would prevent future overdose. On the surface, to those who might not be familiar with the dire situation of the opiate crisis, it might seem like this is a good idea. It might seem like something that we should get on board with. Why not detain youth to make sure that there's a solid plan for them and that services are in place to prevent what could be death by overdose? But we have to think a little bit more about this plan. What are the unintended consequences? Who does involuntary treatment disproportionately affect? The most alarming piece of this proposed legislation was the seeming lack of consultation that the government engaged in with those groups that are key stakeholders, including mental health and substance use clinicians, parents, guardians, social service workers, and the youth themselves to learn more about the best approach to help youth who are at risk of substance overdose with an eye on upholding and protecting young people's human rights, rather than eroding their autonomy and their right to choose. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in this week as we're chatting about Bill 22 and the logistics and ins and outs of involuntary care for youth who are found to be using substances in a problematic way. We already shared some information in our introduction about what this means and what involuntary care means in a British Columbia context, but we also wanted to dive in for more of our practical input and perspectives on this, and we'll um, get into what we think might be helpful about Bill 22, where we see the risks, and where we hope this conversation goes in future. So maybe to get us started, Michelle, do you want to just kind of share about your thoughts on Bill 22 when you started hearing about it, how it came across your horizon? The first time that I heard about Bill 22 was in early summer um, or maybe late spring of 2020. So this would have been shortly after the pandemic started and there was a lot of, everyone was in heightened stress mode already because of the pandemic. But then while I was already in heightened stress from that and working remote and all these things were also happening with Black Lives Matter and uh, the death of people of color in the United States and in Canada, At the same time, it emerged that the BC government was trying to pass a bill that would allow the involuntary hospitalization of youth. So those who are under 19 who experienced overdose and found themselves in the emergency department that required overdose reversal and medical treatment resulting from that overdose. 
And I remember thinking at that time, I'd been away from direct care for a little bit uh, because prior to that, Claire and I, we both worked in adolescent mental health and substance use unit. So it was something that definitely came up. That unit opened in 2017. There were definitely youths that were impacted and affected by overdose. And they ended up eventually on their own volition, usually voluntarily ended up coming to that unit for stabilization sometimes and also for treatment. But the key thing that was different about this Bill 22 was that there would be deliberate changes in the Mental Health Act in BC to allow for the involuntary detainment of youth in order to essentially rally around them. The healthcare team would try to rally around them and make this care plan or treatment plan to prevent them from overdosing again. Or the idea was to make a comprehensive care plan in which they would be able to kind of turn things around and not be at risk for not as great risk for overdose again. And at that time, that struck me very strongly because I knew already from the work that I've been doing in mental health and addictions and substance use for over a decade that Usually it doesn't really, it's not as effective when you're forcing people into treatment and when you're forcing people that have substance use issues into treatment. So the idea that now youth who are an especially vulnerable population could be detained under the Mental Health Act for five to seven days for the purpose of trying to make this treatment plan that they might not be on board with came across as a Band-Aid solution, a knee-jerk reaction to try to address the increasing overdose, opiate overdose crisis that was happening. Claire, what do you recall of when you first heard about this? Yeah, I agree. Similar timing that it seemed to be quite reactionary. And it surprised me from my perspective to come a bit out of nowhere. And it took a lot of people by surprise that we were talking about increasing the capacity under the Mental Health Act to detain people. And it seemed to be moving away from a direction that a lot of care seemed to be moving towards in terms of engaging with youth on their terms, creating low barrier services, and moving away from a policing model um, or a detainment model. I see these concepts as kind of clustered together, like detaining someone, involuntary admissions, uh, the use of seclusion, use of physical and chemical restraint, as you mentioned, in the context of having increasing scrutiny of the relationship between our mental health system and policing, it seemed like an odd time for this conversation about Bill 22 and increasing the options for involuntary care um, for those two conversations to be emerging at the same time seemed odd. And it also struck me that with the BC Mental Health Act, the Ombudsperson's report in recent years about the challenges with the Mental Health Act and how the documentation isn't being done, people aren't being informed of their rights as consistently as we might expect or hope. And there's been a lot of action within the health authorities to rectify that and make sure that when we're invoking the Mental Health Act, that all of the proper forms are being done, all of the proper steps are being taken. And so that also caused me concern with Bill 22, the fact that in many ways, the Mental Health Act isn't a well-oiled machine at this point, I'd say, when you get down to the nitty gritty in practice of nurses and physicians filling out the forms, filling them out correctly. There's a lot of room and growth in that area from what I've seen in practice areas that I've worked in or kind of worked alongside. And so it seemed like an odd choice to then use this tool that's being so heavily scrutinized as another way to kind of intervene for youth. And since then, I've heard strong arguments on both sides. Some people really saying they've had 
good success with capturing youth in that first 72 hours after an overdose. But yeah, that there, there are examples, anecdotal examples of youth having an overdose, coming into hospital care, and then really benefiting from a stabilization period, even if it's not necessarily what they're consenting to initially. But at the same time, if someone is a risk to themselves, if they're a risk to their health, they could have already been detained under the um, Mental Health Act. And so it seemed like this Bill 22 focusing on substance use, focusing on um, opioid overdoses in the context of the fentanyl crisis, um, the drugs, poison drug supply crisis, was much more reactionary and a little bit about politicking as opposed to public health evidence-informed approaches to supporting youth for the long run too, knowing that if the youth is overdosing, if a 15-year-old is um, overdosing because of the poison drug supply, foreseeably they are going to have um, a lot, like a number of interfaces with the healthcare system in different ways and in different capacities and they might benefit from support. And so when someone is still young, if we're doing that against their will, it just seems to me to set up quite an adversarial relationship. Yeah, but I guess my big thing about Bill 22 at this point is that a lot of what I've heard about it is um, anecdotal, both for where it's worked and where there are challenges. Yeah, and I think that was a lot of the questioning that came around it as well, was the when the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction at that time made the announcement that they were putting this bill on the table and they wanted it to pass, there was mention of evidence and that this had already been started as a pilot project at BC Children's Hospital and that it had good outcomes. But as a nurse who works with other nurses and healthcare practitioners on a specialized mental health and substance use unit, we weren't even aware that a pilot project was going on, nor aware of any evidence that demonstrated the effectiveness of it. So we were taken off guard in that way because we we were wondering, what is this evidence that you're speaking of and why wasn't it? disseminated to clinicians that already work with uh, youth that are experiencing mental health and substance use issues. Because it's an an important piece of information, maybe that important piece of evidence that could guide practice. So that was, it was questioning whether that statement was well-grounded or not. Myself, I, when, before I became a nurse, I was a youth care worker. I worked in Alberta and in Alberta, they do have this type of legislation that allows youth that are deemed to be at risk of certain things to be detained and put into treatment against their will. And I just recalled from a decade before in the mid 2000s, when they were trying to pass the legislation and when it first passed in the later 2000s, early 2010s, how problematic that was and how problematic youth care workers um, that worked with that population found it at the time. Because it really, it is problematic in so many ways when you're trying to build trusting relationships with youth and you're trying to help them when the mechanism of intervention is taking away their rights and then locking them up against their will in a treatment program that they may not be on board with. There's a few problems that I saw with that and that other clinicians that I work with had in terms of trying to the government trying to pass this bill without really what seemed like a robust analysis and evidence gathering before trying to pass it through. Mm -hmm. And can you comment more, Michelle, I think that's such an important point, just how sometimes within healthcare conversations about kind of the bridge between academia and research and direct care nursing or direct care healthcare spaces there can be a bit of a breakdown in communication. Is that something that you've experienced as a PhD student and then working in direct care? Have you found that 
seamless? Has it been bumpy at times? What does that look like? Definitely. Definitely. There's a gap in between when evidence and research is done and how that's translated into practice. That's not just a thing that happens in mental health care or in substance use care. That happens across the board in all of healthcare. There is definitely sometimes years in terms of when research is done and when evidence is collected and when those changes can actually happen in the direct care setting. Policies have to change. Standard operating procedures have to change. Education has to be rolled out for staff. So definitely there is there is a lag in that. So you know, in that respect, maybe it was possible that this evidence happened and that this research happened, but it wasn't widely disseminated. And, you know, that it said something that we we all thought kind of went contradictory to a lot of the evidence that's being produced about effective substance use treatment and things like recovery and person-centered care. But if that was the case, then it would have been really important for the government and whoever they were in partnership with to conduct that research, to engage stakeholders on a broad level, like engage stakeholders across the spectrum of youth substance use and mental health services, to disseminate that research and figure out how that could be translated into practice. Because it seemed like just a strange strategy to rely on the Mental Health Act. It seemed like a strange, how can I phrase this? It just seemed like not a great strategy to take away someone's rights in order to be able to help them. And if they had some evidence that showed that there were great outcomes from that, then that might change the minds of some people that work in the field. But without that, it's kind of like we're just relying on the hopes and moral decision-making and strategies that might not actually be grounded in any kind of evidence. And that's risky. Yeah, I think you touch on such an important point about that the lag first between research and then having it implemented in practice. And I think that's one of the things I've often found challenging is like wanting to work in areas that are progressive, that are really learning about what's coming next, that are open to doing things in a new way. But then also that tension or pressure because it does take so long to make changes and especially big changes. And so trying to figure out, trying to stay up on current research and where things are going, but also figuring out how to still exist within a system that is kind of sometimes deeply entrenched in ways that things were done 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's one important piece. And then also, as you said, some of the support for this Bill 22 was coming out of Children's Hospital and some of the ways that they had piloted working differently with youth And I've heard comments from people across the province and definitely kind of reflected myself as well on what it means to implement a provincial um, bill based on an experience in quite a unique urban setting. Mm -hmm. Thinking about even in some of our lower mainland communities that don't have an adolescent inpatient unit in their local hospital, having an involuntary stabilization period, even for 72 hours, can mean that you're placing youth either in eMERGE for 72 hours or placing them on adult inpatient units just because we don't have the appropriate resources, we don't have the appropriate bed spaces to really support these youth. And so part of me wonders, rather than having youth come in and leave immediately because they had a bad experience in hospital. What if we had really great resources in hospital? What if we had people who specialized in youth mental health and substance use able to meet that youth in eMERGE in the moment and engage them in care in other ways, as opposed to having no youth specific resources, having the youth wake up and be like, 
F this place, I'm leaving. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we say, oh, no, you're not. You have to stay here for 72 hours or we'll send the police after you. And there's still no youth specific resources. Like it kind of, it seems like Mm -hmm. a solution with no downstream shifts to how we're doing things. Um, Mm -hmm. It's almost like they were hoping that by making uh, involuntary detention of five to seven days, then that would bring additional resources somehow because suddenly you have this captive population of patients yeah and then that would be the evidence that resources need to be allocated towards that which is strange to as even as I say that to think that violation of rights and holding people against their will would be a mechanism for building up necessary resources because I think you're so right that in urban in urban areas that are well resourced where there are a lot of services then it would be much easier to create a comprehensive care plan and to engage wraparound services for use to to prevent further overdose, but also to engage them in the system. Mm -hmm. But in a rural area, in a remote area, it is not that easy. And thinking about another question that comes up so much in the context of youth substance use is around autonomy and the Infant Act and a young person's right and ability to make choices for themselves. And so if you're doing involuntary stabilization is the only quote unquote successful outcome from that, a youth starting on um, opiate agonist therapy or saying that they're Mm -hmm. never going to use again, if a youth does their stabilization period and says, I don't want to start on Suboxone, I don't want to quit using, I'm open to conversations about using more safely, they download the lifeguard app, they take a naloxone kit, they you know, do some of those things, is that considered a positive outcome of that, of that stabilization period? Or like, and are you just going to continue detaining the youth against their will if they overdose? Obviously, that's not ideal. We don't want anyone overdosing five times in a year. But it just seems like to what end are you going to continue holding that youth against their will? Because Mm -hmm. it seems like the only you're only doing it to get them to change their behavior. And if they're not open to changing their behavior, why are we doing it? Mm -hmm. And I think another important question that we ask is what were, who, where was the voice of the youth and their Mm -hmm. families in this, where, where was engagement with them and asking if this would be a a thing that they would want. And because it's possible, maybe some youth would find this helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe we don't know, but we'll never know if we don't ask them. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, such a key part of this. And as you said, like, I think there is possibility here, like something needs to be done differently in terms of how we support youth who are using substances. I think because there's Mm -hmm. so much variability across the province, there's so much variability, even in terms of practitioners, a youth could walk into the same clinic and see one person one day and another person the next day and get two fairly different attitudes in terms of harm reduction and person-centered care. And so change is needed. And Mm -hmm. not, yeah, like I have to remind myself with Bill 22 that it did come from a group of very highly skilled, highly trained people who want what's best for youth um, and, you know, saw it benefit some youth. And so trying to leave space for figuring out what are the parts of it that worked, but what are the parts of it that also kind of made me panic a bit when I first heard about it, thinking about Mm -hmm. what 
what direction are we going in here? Yeah, looking for that middle ground. For sure. And it's it's tough, right? Because youth are, they haven't lived their life yet. It's not the same. In a lot of ways, it's not the same as we look at an adult. Mm-hmm. which it like seems strange because like, what's really the difference between an 18 year old and a 20 year old, but w- we look at it as very different. And a lot of parents um, and family members and guardians, they are experienced desperate times where they don't know how to help their child. Yeah. And they, that might be, they might be viewing that as the, you know, it's either their use it, their loved one is dead or they're being detained in the hospital. And at least if they're detained in the hospital, they know that they're alive and safe for the moment. Mm-hmm. But it becomes problematic when you think about what's the, what's the end of that, because five to seven days isn't very much time. Two weeks isn't even very much time. Once someone withdraws from their substance, it actually increases the risk. There's other, there's other unintended consequences that are happening. Yeah. yeah, like if the choice is between your loved one being dead on the street yeah. or being safe in a hospital, any of us would choose safe in a hospital. That's yeah. a hard decision to make. A hundred percent. And I think that what you're touching on really highlights the fact that there are no easy answers or there's no one size fits all. And there's so much to learn and so much room to grow. Maybe as we look towards wrapping up this episode, um, do you have any thoughts, Michelle, on kind of what you have seen work when it comes to mental health and substance use treatment and supports for youth or where you hope services and care moves in the future? What I'm hoping for is that there's greater resources allocated to services that exist in the community. And even it would be wonderful if services existed within schools, because a lot of kids are in schools much earlier than high school, because I think once you get to high school, the kids that weren't able to fit in and a lot of kids that are having mental health and substance use issues, unfortunately, they they might fall out of touch with the school system by the time they get to high school. But engaging with kids and families early in their education, I think would be a really smart move, a really helpful move to make in terms of allocating resources. And then having more nurses and social workers and healthcare clinicians doing outreach and active in the community to connect with those youth and engage them early instead of waiting until they're so unwell or so symptomatic or have so many mental health and substance use issues and are just you know, are facing such so much of a burden of the world that the way that you get into contact with them is when they're at this place of getting to the emergency department. That shouldn't be where we're targeting our resources. It should be much earlier than that. Yeah, I think that's so important. And as you said, embedding this information in schools, in communities, I think one of the things that I continue to see in practice that I just find so disheartening is this continued narrative of like, oh no, this kid would never use substances like that, you know, or like, oh, other troubled youth Mm -hmm. end up in a merge with overdoses. And one of the most morally distressing things that I experience in my job now, my current job, is if a youth shows up in a merge in mental health or substance use crisis, and we have no previous contact with them. Because mm-hmm. I think to get to that point where someone, as you said, is that unwell and we they're not connected with their school counselor, they're not connected with a mental health or substance use clinician, they're not connected to a youth worker in community, 
I just think how long has this young person been suffering in isolation and how much more could we offer them? Whereas if someone, obviously we never want someone to experience crisis, but part of the trajectory of, um, you know, struggling with mental health or substance use concerns over time is that there will be times of crisis. And so if a young person um, ends up in a crisis and they text their youth care worker that they have a great relationship with and the youth worker meets them in Emerge and helps transition them through that experience, then I think, okay, the system is doing as much as it can to hold this person through a really difficult time. Whereas if someone is totally in isolation and ends up in Emerge, like picked up by police on the side of the highway and parents had no idea they were struggling, their school has no idea they're struggling. Yeah, how, how did we miss this? And so mm-hmm. I think having more of those low barrier, no stigma, just rolled into the way, like talking to the youth about the fact that like, if they are drinking coffee or smoking cigarettes or having occasional beers on the weekend, they're engaging in substance use. And so how can we help support them to have, you know, engage in those activities more safely and then break down some of the barriers so that even amongst youth, it doesn't seem like, oh no, we're fine until you start using opiates because that's practically my experience working with youth is that's just not the case often. Like there's a huge blurred middle ground between no substance use and ending up in emerge. Yeah, as you were saying that sparked the thought that harm reduction is also a key thing that we have to start integrating into child and adolescent services as well and into the school system. Because I think before, in many ways, we still have this idea that if we don't talk about it, if we don't teach them and tell them about substance use, then they're not going to use substances. Yeah. And that is incorrect. I think the same goes for, you know, making things like youth specific supervised consumption sites, because I think there was a lot of the belief that youth wouldn't use those sites. But then the alternative is that they'll use the adult sites, which is probably quite scary and Mm -hmm. isn't designed for an adolescent. So yeah. where, what's the alternative using alone on the street? That's not a great alternative. And it's totally, mm-hmm. that's, I really hope that that's the direction things can go is kind of learning from the adult world and then tailoring it to a youth audience and building on lessons we've learned from 30, 40 years ago, where conversations about sex, edu- sex education and birth control and contraception and things used to be just don't have sex end of story Mm -hmm. and tons of people getting pregnant and needing to like get secret abortions (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. moving to a place now where like starting in elementary school kids are taught about their bodies and taught proper anatomical names um, for their body parts and start the conversation before they're like in the thick of it needing to make decisions about condoms no condoms so Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. yeah similar my hope is to kind of see conversations about substance use go a similar way. And it's all the same, like conversations that we have about consent and safer sex and contraception and going to youth clinic, all of that messaging also applies to how we can chat with youth about substance use, including alcohol. And so it's not like we need to come up with a whole new message for each of these things, for all of the things, the message ought to be, don't judge youth, don't stigmatize them. How can we reduce harms? How can we engage youth where they're at? in services they feel good about. And then that covers all of the risky things youth can do. Agreed. So hopefully, I mean, we'll stay tuned and see where it all goes. Uh, I look forward to, I feel like the two of us have many years ahead of us working in this area. So hopefully we'll get to see some of these changes and track some of this uh, throughout our careers. 
Yeah. And I think we'll revisit this topic again. If yeah. more developments happen on it and we'll keep you guys updated. Absolutely. Thanks so much to everyone for listening and tune in next month for another episode. Nursing adolescents can be a tough job. Nursing adolescents who are having issues with substance use can add an additional layer of complexity. We live in a world in which substance use and substance users are severely stigmatized. People who use drugs are demonized. We see this in the media. We hear this at work. We see this in our communities. As the opiate crisis increases, youth are also facing issues like poverty, homelessness, systemic racism, gender inequity. And this is on top of the normal stress of just being an adolescent. When we think about adolescents, we often can't help but think that they should have their whole life ahead of them rather than face the risk of death by drug poisoning. Of course, we want to help. And sometimes it might seem like protection, restriction, and containment are the only strategies that can keep youth who are at risk of future opiate poisoning safe. But at what cost? It is imperative that youth and their families are part of the conversation about finding solutions. It's also imperative that as nurses, we use evidence and research and include the voice of the patient in these strategies that we devise to help. And this is to ensure that they're not take two. It's imperative that as nurses, we use evidence, research, and include the voice of the patient in those strategies that we devise to help to ensure that we're not inadvertently hurting. So join us in making a shift to collaborative care and to uphold a human rights perspective. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Shift Change Podcast. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you want to learn more about this episode or to share any feedback with us, please visit our website at www.theshiftchange.ca. Our website has blog posts, behind-the-scenes photos, and links to our Instagram and Twitter accounts. We also share other projects that we're working on on that website. So drop us a line because we'd love to hear from you.